very first episode of Critical History, a subdivision of the Think Critical network of podcasts. I'm your host, Adam Schwalbe. Our tale starts in the early 15th century in Southeast Asia. The region corresponding to modern-day Burma is split up into four major powers, Ava, Hanthawadi, Arakan, and various Shan states. Of these, the most relevant to our story is the Ava kingdom, until then the most powerful Burmese domain. This kingdom has some interesting parallels to the medieval state of Byzantium. It was a direct descendant of the very successful pagan state, uh, referring to the ruling dynasty, not religion, that unified the Burmese region, and for much of Ava's history, its driving ambition was the recreation of this empire. Needless to say, it failed, and its resources were drained by long, hard wars. Again, a parallel to Byzantium. Another weakness of the Ava kingdom was its method of administering its conquered kingdoms. They were allowed to retain a great deal of autonomy, serving as vassal states. This meant that they had a will of their own, a will that was more often than not against the interests of Ava. Starting around 1410, they started chronically rebelling, adding one more strain to the already tottering Ava state. A nation can only take so much stress before it breaks, and by 1490, many of the former vassals most notably the Shan states in the kingdom of Prome, were independent. This left only one vassal left, the small principality of Tanju, the focal point of our story, which had been steadily increasing in power for the previous half-century. The reasons for this are manifold, but most significantly, Tanju had been an island of stability in the devastated region. As a result, it had been a beneficiary of large amounts of immigration, people fleeing death and destruction in war-torn Burma. In 1510, Tanju realized its power compared to that of its overlord and declared independence. This was the final death blow to Ava. It was invaded and sacked by a coalition of the Shan states. The soldiers that had once fought side by side with Ava were now destroying it, and with it, the final vestiges of the pagan empire. A puppet leader was placed on the Ava throne, and the coalition leaders sat back, thinking themselves secure in their new position. However, they failed to conquer Tanju, thinking it too unimportant. How could a small principality pose a threat to a large coalition of nations? The answer turns out to be through conquest and brilliant leadership, for the leader of Tanju at this point was Tabin Shwedi. For all his failings in the administration of his state, Tabin Shwedi excelled as a commander and as a strategist. He understood the dire threat posed by the Shan coalition, and realized that the only way to secure Tanju's position as an independent state was to strengthen its position economically and militarily. As such, he decided to embark on a war of conquest against the neighboring Hanthawadi kingdom. Tabinchwadi chose well for it, the Hanthawadi were no state to resist. It is perhaps telling that when Tabinshwedi marched his army down to the Hanthawadi capital of Pegu, the general in charge of its defense abandoned the city and retreated northwards. Determined to catch their army, Tabinshwedi personally led his troops up to where the Hanthawadi army had retreated, the neighboring kingdom of Prome. So great was the disarray of the Hanthawadi force that a hugely outnumbered, lightly armed advance guard from Tabinshwedi's main force was able to defeat it and thus Tanju had embarked on an enormously successful conquest, gaining massive amounts of land and population for minimal casualties. However, the work was not done yet. One Hanthawadi province still remained independent, the Viceroy of Martaban. It is now that a juggernaut enters our story, the Portuguese Empire. 
At this point, they had ships, cannons, and muskets that easily outclassed anything that Southeast Asia had to offer. In short, they were a military power on the minds of all. For the next phase of the Hanthawadi War, Tabinshwedi decided to hire 700 Portuguese mercenaries equipped with the best guns European gunsmiths had to offer. Tabinshwedi then moved his army in position to siege the port of Martaban. About a month into the siege, he tried to break the defenders, and to do that, he assembled a fleet of 300 warships and assaulted the city. This failed, however, because of the considerably heavier Portuguese cannons that the Viceroy of Martaban hired to defend the city. This situation, in which the Portuguese fought on both sides, was not rare. The Portuguese acted more or less as mercenaries, and they made a quick buck wherever they could, even to the point of fighting both sides of a war. Getting back to the Siege of Martaban, after a while the city started to starve. Even their heavy Portuguese cannons could not procure food for its inhabitants, and its leaders were forced to the bargaining table. In this case, however, there was no such thing. Tabin Shwedi demanded unconditional surrender. Horrified, the leader of Martaban, Sabinya, decided that it was a bit too much to demand. Instead of accepting Tanju's ludicrous peace deal, as a last resort, Sabinya appealed to the Portuguese and offered them a deal. He would become their vassal if they only broke the siege. The Portuguese governor of Goa weighed his options, but ultimately, he did not want to be dragged into a costly war with Tanju. Lines of communication from Goa to Europe were long, and a war that far from the Portuguese homeland could not logistically work. Any rational person would decide to surrender, but Binya decided to go on a suicidal course. He would hold out even if it meant the death of his city. Meanwhile, in anticipation of the hardships campaigning during the rapidly approaching rainy season would bring, Tavin Shwedi was preparing for the final assault. Hundreds of flame boats, massive barges with siege towers and scaling ladders. Finally, the day came to execute his plan, and it worked to a letter. Three days later, Binya's head was forcibly removed from his body, and with that, Tanju's conquest of Hanthawadi was complete. This sent a message through the region. Tanju was not a state to be messed with, and several small governors submitted to Tabin Shwedi soon after. A small city-state had just conquered a relatively large kingdom, and in doing so had emerged in Burmese geopolitics as a major power. This new kingdom was surely in a better position than when they were a small city-state, but they were still far from secure. They were strong, but a concerted effort against them could certainly bring Tanju to its knees. All rested on the next war. The Shan coalition had grown increasingly worried about Tanju's acquisition of Hanthawadi, as it had inherited all of the kingdom's resources and could theoretically challenge their dominance. They decided, therefore, to nip this upstart empire in the bud to aid Prome Tabin Shwedi's next target. They did not anticipate, however, the rapidity with which Tabin Shwedi would execute the next war. Only two years later, Tanju armies would be once again on the move. The target was Prome, strategically significant as the gateway to Upper Burma. Tabin Shwedi took the initiative, driving the Prome armies back into their walled capital. Just as it seemed as if they were settling in for a siege, Shan coalition forces under King Thohanbwa arrived, a host which outnumbered Tabin Shwedi's troops two to one. The resulting battle was costly, but with brilliant use of his Portuguese firearms, Tabin Shwedi pulled off a victory. After the Shan coalition failed, the state of Arakan tried their hand at breaking the siege, but their armies were destroyed in a masterfully laid trap, with Tanju's a much smaller force annihilating them. Prome held out for another month, but finally fell. Their king, 
Minh Kong surrendering on May 19, 1542. The attempt by the Shan states to break the rising power of Tanju had failed, but undaunted they tried again. Amassing a large army, including a hundred and twenty war elephants, they invaded Tanju but could not break its defenses. The Tanju forces under General Bayanog then counterattacked, conquering territory up to the city of Pagan. The consequences of the conquests up to this point were immense. Tabanshwedi now controlled the largest land empire in Burma, unparalleled since the days of the Pagan Empire. On the other side, the Shan coalition was under serious strain. The sour relations between the member states were threatening to tear it apart, and never again in Tabanshwedi's lifetime would it pose a serious threat to the Tanju state. Tabanshwedi could do no wrong. His last military campaigns had beaten all odds and forged an empire from a small governorship. However, his next campaign against Arakan was to be a humbling one indeed, ending in ignominious failure. 1545, an Arakan noble by the name of Min Alonghua was about to lose his office to his nephew. He decided to appeal to Tabanshwedi for help retaining it, presumably by military force. And Tabanshwedi, faced with an opportunity to conquer an Arakan state, by now weakened by infighting, decided to mobilize for war. Tanju could not, however, bring its full force to bear, for the northern border was not fully secure. Separatist rebels were menacing Ava, and they could very easily turn their pikes on Tanju. Only four regiments were sent to Arakan, consisting of about 5,000 soldiers and 100 elephants. The leader of Arakan, Minbin, reacted with haste. Tanju armies were on the march, but they would not arrive for some time. Meanwhile, Min Hla had some meager forces in his capital, and Bin made the correct tactical decision to attack Tla's forces while they were still separated from Tanju's more substantial force. They quickly drove Hla and his meager force from their capital of Thandui, and when the Tanju force arrived, they were shocked to find the city already taken. Tanju command decided that a siege with so few men would be unwise, so they retreated. Since the rainy season was rapidly approaching, this would be the end of Tanju's first campaign of the war, a campaign that had been a nearly bloodless victory for Minbin, the ruler of Aragon. Undeterred, Tabanshwedi started to draw up preparations for the next campaign against Arakan. This time, there would be no messing around in terms of troop count. An invasion force was gathered, numbering around 20,000 troops, about four times that of the failed previous invasion. In addition, an armada was gathered to transport a majority of the troops directly to Arakan. There would be no long trek through the mountains like last time. The fleet numbered around 1,000 ships, more than enough to outmuscle any Arakan fleet. In October of 1546, the invasion commenced. Tabanshwedi's forces landed on Arakanese beaches, easily brushing aside resistance. They then marched for the Arakanese capital of Merakiu, but found it heavily fortified. Minbin had foresight. For years, he had worked on fortifying the capital in preparation for an event like the one unfolding. Indeed, the walls around the city were so fortified that there resisted shelling after shelling from heavy Portuguese cannons. Although safe in that aspect, the capital was still in danger of being stormed if a breach somehow occurred. So Minbin took a measure that virtually guaranteed the impregnability of a city. He flooded a giant moat, halting any Tanju attempt to take the city by force. Again, Tab and Shwedi was forced into a siege, and with the rainy season fast approaching, he was forced to abandon it. However, before he left, a peace deal was negotiated with Minbin, which was more like a white peace. No large concessions were made by either side, 
However, a blow had been dealt to Tabanshwadi's reputation, and a streak of successful warring was over. Tanju's momentum was lost. Perhaps attempting to save face after the stalemate at Arakan, Tabanshwadi decided next to invade Siam. This invasion was monumental. It would start a series of wars that would last for centuries. The immediate cause of the war is unclear. As with the previous war, it depends on which historian you choose to listen to. The Siamese chroniclers claim that it was a war of aggression, while Burmese chroniclers claim that Tabanshwadi was taking back land unlawfully occupied by Siam. Whatever the cause, the first part of the war was relatively tame. Tabanshwadi drew up a force of 12,000 troops, considerably smaller than the last war. Uh, one must wonder how much his manpower reserves were drained by this point. Uh, and he sent them off with a goal of reclaiming the upper Tenasserim region. After small skirmishes, the goal was accomplished, and the Siamese forces retreated into the lower Tenasserim coast. The war could have ended there, but Tabanshwadi's grand ambition prevented this. He would not be satisfied with a minor conquest. He made the decision to raise up another force for the next year's campaign. Tabanshwadi gathered up again a total of 12,000 troops for the next series of battles, and gathered them at Martaban, the site of his triumph all those years before. Then, personally leading his troops, he marched them through the Three Pagodas Pass and onto the very heartland of Siam. Hearing the news of this terrible host, Maha Chakafrat, ruler of Siam, started a general mobilization of his kingdom, his capital of Ayutthaya, which Tabanshwadi was surely targeting must not fall. Meanwhile, Tabanishwadi continues his advance, capturing towns along his way, and finally reaching the Siamese capital of Ayutthaya. He camped his army near the city on the Lumpley Plains in perfect view of Chakafrat, who, seeing the enemy at the gates, decided to engage them in battle. According to the Burmese chroniclers, Chakafrat smashed his army into Tanju's center, oblivious to the trap that was laid out. Two parts of the Burmese army had laid in ambush, and now, Having a clear path to, to the rest of the Siamese army, they charged, completely obliterating them. Tavin Shwedi had won the field, and therefore commenced the siege of Ayutthaya. This siege, just like the siege of Meraku, had that one factor that consistently made Tavin Shwedi's job painfully difficult, that of the rainy season. And just as it defeated him in Arakan, so would it defeat him at Ayutthaya. The city was surrounded on three sides by waterways and defended by huge Portuguese cannons. There was no hope of assaulting it. Therefore, the only course of action would be to starve it, a task nigh impossible in the five months before the rainy season. Tabanshwadi surely recognized this, for he decided to pack his force up and abandon the siege. The long retreat home was not easy for the Burmese, for Siamese sk skirmishers constantly harassed them and dealt death whenever they could. Tabanshwadi knew that he needed an extra bargaining chip, for peace talks surely lay ahead, and he wished to strengthen his position as much as possible. To accomplish this, on the way home, he obliterated the Siamese armies that had been harassing him, and captured two important Siamese vassal princes. The peace talks were slightly, no, though not extremely, favorable to the Tanju side. Siam agreed to a token tribute, and the prisoners that Tabanshwadi had captured during the campaign were released. And it is here that we shall end our story. The rest of Tabanshwadi's life was consumed by alcohol, that ruiner of good men, and he was assassinated not but a year later. The Tanju Empire promptly collapsed, with major governors quickly declaring their independence. This would not last very long, for the old Tanju Empire would be reunified under Tabanshwadi's successor, Bayanog. 
Overall, The Rise of Tanju is an incredible story of a small city strengthened by years of peace and stability who, under a great ruler, carved a name for itself in the annals of history as a great state and empire. It is a story of wars and battles, of death and prosperity, but overall it is a humanistic story of the power of a single man to make a name for himself and his city in that great library of history. <laughs>